The following broadcast is released under a Creative Commons license. I believe in Jesus Christ, the only Son of God. I believe He lived and died, and that He rose again. I believe and trust in Him. Ascended into hell, Christ our living head will one day come again to judge the living and the dead. I believe and trust in Him. I will trust in my Redeemer, sing of His love that lasts. Pastor Yeshua. You've been listening to Creed by Richard Jensen from his album, Order of Service. By way of introduction, pastor is an acrostic which stands for preaching all salvation through one Redeemer. Our Redeemer, Yeshua, Jesus, is the Hebrew name for the Lord. It means Yahweh, the Lord, is salvation. Translated from Hebrew into the Greek language, the name Yeshua becomes Jesus. The English transliteration for Jesus is Jesus. This program deals with apologetics, questions on and about God, the Bible, and the Christian faith. I take questions and seek by Scripture to give answers and encouragement for everyone, including the tough-minded living in today's skeptical society. And now, let's join Pastor Yeshua. Welcome to Pastor Yeshua. In the first two parts of this episode, we began asking and answering several questions in an effort to help identify what is the correct biblical definition of being a Christian. The questions posed are as follows. 1. If Christianity is authentic, then why are there so many denominations and or variations? 2. If Christianity is true, then why have there been so many Christians who have done such terrible things? 3. If Christianity is true, why are there Christians who still continue to commit sin? And 4. What is a true Christian? In this episode, Part 3, we will continue to endeavor to specify and resolve any stereotypical misconceptions about the nature and character of what it means biblically to be a Christian. We begin where we left off in part two with the final question number four. Question four. The fourth and final question is, 
what is a true Christian? Alternately, one could also ask, what does it mean to be a Christian? Or, what, if any, are the qualifications for becoming and or remaining a Christian? As we ask the question, we must understand that there are two different mindsets by which we can answer. In the one case, we have those that are of the world, and in the other, we have those that are in the world, but not of it. Essentially, we have those that are of the world who label themselves Christians, who are Christians by name only. Then we have those who are Christians, according to the definitions found within Scripture in its context, regardless of the world. Put simply, the answer breaks down into two possible definitions. A. Cultural Christianity and B. Biblical Christianity. Let's discuss the issue of the first possibility, cultural Christianity, first. First we ask, one, what is cultural Christianity? Cultural Christianity, sometimes referred to as carnal Christianity, has many possible definitions. Given today's politically correct sensibilities, outcome-based education, and multicultural curriculum, the majority of people today have been trained that it is bad manners, it is not nice, it is rude, and it demonstrates hate on our part to believe in, much less advocate, absolutes such as black and white, discernment, ultimate authority, or judgment. Since these attributes are mean, hateful, and evil, sophisticated Christians living in the new regime of today's intellectual society and culture are trained to see, know, and understand, and believe all sides equally. The New Age Christian supports and tolerates everyone and everything without opinion. In fact, the New Age Christian demonstrates and proves that they are truly Christian by being a disembodied, opinionless, all-inclusive, all-tolerant, love-everything, hate-nothing person. Stated another way, cultural Christianity is a philosophy, a mindset, or a way of thinking where people filter, process, evaluate, and live out what they or society see as being Christian primarily or exclusively through the prism of the culture and environment in which they live. 2. What is Biblical Christianity? The definitions, understanding, and authority for Biblical Christianity are revealed within the entirety of Scripture in its context. These definitions, understanding, and authority are oftentimes in opposition to that of the world and cultural Christians. Whereas to some degree, the culture in which we live will always have an influence on the flavor and appearance of Christianity in its day, the essential fundaments of what constitutes and maintains any person as being a Christian with a healthy growing relationship with Jesus remains constant. In contrast to cultural Christians who tend to love and obey the things of this world, the biblical Christian loves and obeys God and the things of God. Biblical Christians love and trust God's word and they hate those things which God's word teaches that God hates because those things separate us and hinder us from greater fellowship with God. Unfortunately, as much as I or anyone else might like to come up with a single fact which serves to delineate who is or who is not a Christian, there is no such thing. 
because in the end the issue is one of the heart. At the same time, there are some general signposts which individually and cumulatively tend to compare and contrast where our hearts, minds, and loyalties lie. Here are some general observations regarding the two. 1. When cultural Christians use the word Christian to label themselves or others, they do so in the same way with equal importance and the same emphasis that they would label themselves or others as being male or female, married, single, or divorced, what sign of the zodiac they were born under, political party, or religious affiliation, i.e. Christian. When biblical Christians use the word Christian, they are not using the word in any demographic or cultural sense. Rather, biblical Christians should be and are submitting to God's word as their ultimate authority to guide and define what is and what is not Christian and how our lives comport to that definition. 2. When cultural Christians look at and evaluate the things of the world around them, it is not uncommon for them to be conflicted and confused or enamored and desirous about those things compared to the things of God and eternity. Cultural Christians see an inordinate placement of value, interest, hopes, and desire being invested in the things of the world and often view the things of God as being of second, distant importance or none at all. Cultural Christians tend to view the world as their home. Consequently, the here and now, this temporal life and its rewards, are the end-all, be-all, which are the driving force, goal, and purpose of their existence. Biblical Christians see this world as a campground. This world is a place we are passing through. We are pilgrims en route to our eternal home, heaven. It is the things of the spirit and of eternity which are real and have substance. Learning, praise, and glorification of, as well as submission and obedience to God, are the purpose and driving force for our existence. Biblical Christians view the things of this world as wood, hay, and stubble which will eventually burn. The things of God and eternity are seen as gold, silver, and precious jewels. 3. Cultural Christians are comfortable calling themselves Christians as long as the general public around them does not know they are identifying themselves by that name or as long as the label Christian has not taken on such disrepute that their friends, neighbors, and the general public do not treat them with contempt, ridicule, or prejudice. The moment the term Christian begins to take on a negative connotation, the cultural Christian will go into hiding or disavow the label to the same degree. The biblical Christian humbly maintains their relationship with Jesus and is prepared to defend the faith and to give every man an answer for the hope that lies within, despite the odds, the circumstances, or the consequences. 4. Cultural Christians can, and often do, consciously or subconsciously separate Jesus from his divine nature as the second person of the Trinity. As such, cultural Christians are quick to acknowledge, accept, and practice the cultural and philosophical teachings of Jesus regarding doing earthly good, justice, mercy, and nobility, 
while at the same time denying and divorcing themselves from the clear teachings of his power, divinity, godhood, and eternity. Cultural Christians dismiss, downplay, or symbolize Jesus' role and impact regarding sin, separation, redemption, reconciliation, atonement, judgment, and eternal life or death. 5. Cultural Christianity ultimately conforms to, measures, and judges things by consensus, percentage, public opinion, feelings, sensibilities of the majority of the general populace in which they live. Biblical Christians understand, and to an extent respect what the general populace think and believe, however, all issues from which reality, truth, meaning, morals, and beauty are established and acted upon are done so within the context of Scripture in its entirety. 6. Typically, cultural Christians view Christianity as being a new religion which came about sometime around the birth and subsequent death of Jesus since he is regarded as the founder of Christianity. Biblical Christians understand that this is a faulty viewpoint. Instead, we understand that God's Word includes both the Old and New Testaments and that they are in fact one integrated message regarding the person, nature, and identity of Jesus of Nazareth prophesied through the Old Testament and revealed to be the Messiah or the Christ within the New Testament. Further, we recognize that we are neither in an old or new religion. Rather, we abide in a relationship with the one and only living God, forever the same, who chose to reveal himself in the fullness of time as the second of three persons, i.e. the Son, Jesus the Christ, who is our Lord and Savior, God and King. Finally, we need to look at the linguistics of the term Christianity. The English word Christian is a compound word made up of the word Christ and the suffix ian, I-A-N. As we look at the various Greek, Hebrew, Aramaic, Latin, and English words translated Christ, we see that the word Christ is actually a title meaning anointed one, or Messiah. The suffix ian, I-A-N, simply means of, related to, resembling, or belonging to. It must be understood that when discussing the definition to the word Christian, whenever we mention the word Messiah, some confusion may arise about Jesus and the title Messiah. Historically, the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi has revelation, record, and prophecy in abundance regarding the promise and expectation of a deliverer, the Messiah, who would come to deliver his chosen people from their sins. As a result, the Hebrew-Jewish mindset was one in which there was a constant hope and expectation waiting for a specific individual who would deliver them. This person would have many titles, but essentially his main role would be that of Messiah. In time, as the Hebrew culture gave way to the Greek culture and language, people referring to the Messiah or Deliverer would have done so using the Greek word Christos. During Jesus' lifetime in ministry, we see numerous instances where those who knew or met Jesus identified him as the Messiah. 
For more information on these Old Testament prophecies and their fulfillment, I would direct those interested to the episode entitled, Jesus the Messiah Has Come. Jesus himself accepted and acknowledged the title several times, such as in Matthew chapter 16, verses 13 through 17, which says, quote, When Jesus came into the coasts of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? And they said, Some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias, and others Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. He said unto them, But whom say ye that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven." Unquote. In terms of the history of the use of the word, the first biblical record of the word Christian occurs in Acts chapter 11, where shortly after the martyrdom of Stephen, many early believers retreated. Luke records in Acts how many of these believers began to witness and preach the gospel not only to the Jews, but also to the Gentiles. Barnabas is sent from the church in Jerusalem to evaluate the situation in Antioch. Upon arrival, Barnabas is so impressed that he seeks out Paul to accompany him to Antioch for help with the situation. Eventually, Paul and Barnabas spend an entire year in Antioch preaching and teaching about Jesus' ministry, life, crucifixion, death, burial, and resurrection. Chapter 26 of Acts 11 comments on this by saying, quote, And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch." Unquote. The next time the word Christian is used is in Acts chapter 26, where Paul is on trial for sedition and spreading the gospel, and he is making his defense before King Agrippa. During Paul's legal presentation of his case, Paul stipulates to the fact that Agrippa is an quote-unquote expert in the customs and questions of the Jews who are Paul's accusers in the matter pending. Paul reminds Agrippa of Paul's former status as a Pharisee, who are the strictest in the Jewish religion, and one who once persecuted followers of Jesus. Paul recounts his vision of the resurrected Lord Jesus and his subsequent conversion on the road to Damascus. Paul points out to Agrippa that he is witnessing to all the same things that the prophets and Moses said would occur, namely that Christ would suffer first, rise from the dead, and show light unto the people and unto the Gentiles. When finally Paul finishes, he asks Agrippa if he believes the prophets. It is at this point Agrippa says in verse 28, quote, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Unquote. This may sound trite, however, keep in mind Agrippa's great father was Herod, who many years earlier had tried to kill Jesus as a baby. Now we have Agrippa, the great grandson of Herod, admitting he stands poised, almost ready to accept Jesus as his Lord and Savior.
Keeping these issues of cultural versus biblical Christianity in mind, as well as the linguistics and history of the word, let's again ask the question, what is the correct biblical definition of Christianity? What, if any, blueprint do we have? I submit that the correct biblical answer and proper understanding to one's status as a biblical Christian is outlined by the five C stepping stones. 1. Conviction. 2. Confession. 3. Conversion. 4. Confirmation. And 5. Consummation. Let's take them one at a time. 1. The first stepping stone which gives evidence of biblical Christianity is conviction. Conviction is the prompting of God's Holy Spirit which brings us to the first floor, the lobby entrance, if you will, the place of understanding, according to Romans chapter 3, verse 23, which says, quote, For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Unquote. Conviction does two things. A. Conviction, when drawn by God's grace, brings sinners unto the second stepping stone of confession, while conviction resisted leads to greater rebellion, preventing one from moving to confession. B. Conviction plus confession pave the way to the third stepping stone of conversion, whereby grace, through faith, justification occurs. Afterwards, conviction serves to conform us through God's continued grace and faith on the path of sanctification towards consummation. In either case, conviction is God's design of interaction with mankind through His Spirit, both to redeem us and to draw each of us closer to Himself. Man's action or reaction to conviction is the touchstone which axiomatically gives evidence as to our status as a Christian. For example, in general, the more a person sees, understands, and has the revelation of God's righteousness and holiness, the more that person will see their condition as being fallen short of that standard in proportion. Conversely, the more a person rejects or is in rebellion to God, the more that person will find the reasons and ability to believe they are good or righteous based on their own merits. Good examples of conviction are found in John chapter 16, verse 8, where it says, quote, And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, unquote. Also, Isaiah chapter 6, verse 5, quote, Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined, because I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts, unquote. 2. The second stepping stone which gives evidence of biblical Christianity is confession. Confession brings those convicted to come by God's grace to the next step according to Romans chapter 10 verses 9 through 11 which says quote, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thy heart that God has raised him from the dead thou shalt be saved for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation for the scripture saith 
Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, unquote. The best example of this is found in Luke chapter 18, verse 13, quote, But the tax collector, standing some distance away, was even unwilling to lift up his eyes to heaven, but was beating his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner, unquote. Confession is essentially an agreement to the truth, reality, and understanding of our situation brought about by conviction outlined by Romans chapter 3, verse 23, i.e., I have sinned and come short of the glory of God. More importantly, as the sinner is drawn into the arena of confession, the sinner does so with the added realization that they are not a sinner simply because of acts and behaviors which they have committed or omitted. Rather, the sinner understands the basic fact that they are a sinner because that is their nature, character, and condition apart from God. As a result, the sinner sees that unless God himself does something to change their nature, character, and condition, their situation is hopeless and they remain separated from God by their sin as a result. We also know from Scripture that man has no way out of this situation based upon his own power, merits, or knowledge. Essentially, Confession acquiesces to the necessity for God himself to convert and transform our nature, character, and condition from one that has fallen and failed to a new nature, character, and condition reconformed to his image. In this sense, the sinner sees that it is Jesus and his imputed righteousness based upon grace through faith, which is that outside force which acts by his power upon the sin in our lives, which was and is in motion in our lives. Confession is the bridge in the process which acknowledges these dynamics and takes the sinner from conviction to conversion. God's grace moves our conviction to confession and repentance regarding the rebellion which prevents reconciliation and justification. The confession is an absolute and unconditional total acknowledgement that, as previously stated, that we have been and are totally fallen short of God's perfection, glory, and righteousness. We are completely unable to do or refrain from doing anything on our own which will impress God or heal the separation we have created. The confession is also that we have sought to do things our own way rather than God's way. Lastly, to one degree or another we confess that we have been stubborn, rebellious, prideful, arrogant, or otherwise antagonistic toward God. As we make this confession, God simultaneously displaces these negative attributes through repentance, which simply means to turn from one way to another. In this case, God turns us from these attributes of rebellion towards an attitude of submission, yielding, and acceptance of God's way and His will. In this case, we recognize, confess, and accept that God sent His Son Jesus, who became God in the flesh. Jesus is the Christ, the Anointed One, our Messiah, who lived the perfect, holy, righteous, and sinless life while on earth. 
Jesus then accepted all of our sins and trespasses on our behalf. Finally, Jesus was then crucified, died, and was buried in order to completely pay the price for all of our sins once and for all. 3. The third stepping stone which gives evidence of biblical Christianity is conversion. Conversion is the culmination of the first two stepping stones which result in the ability for any person to correctly apply the title of being a Christian to their life. When we use the word conversion, we are recognizing that God has changed our hearts, that we have gone from an unregenerate nature to having a new nature implanted. The issue of conversion deals with two things. A. Justification and B. Sanctification. Firstly, A. Justification has to do with every person's legal or judicial standing before God. Every human, as pointed out by the earlier reference in Romans, has sinned. We have all fallen short of God's perfection. Romans chapter 6 verse 23 points out, Quote, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, unquote. What we learn from this is that because we have all sinned, we are all living on death row, waiting for our just punishment, which is eternal separation. Justification, which is the result of conversion, occurs after the first two stepping stones have been sincerely completed, and when we, by grace, through faith, receive God's gift of eternal life. At this point, the person who experiences conversion goes from having a nature, character, heart, and condition which is fallen, broken, failed, rebellious, separated, unrighteous, and filled with sin, to having an indwelling new nature, character, heart, and condition implanted through the completed works and imputed righteousness of Jesus Christ our Lord. Once God does this, all of our past, present, and future sins, trespasses, and unrighteous behavior is completely forgiven and forgotten. Our judicial and legal slate is washed clean, and all God sees is Christ's works and righteousness imputed to our account. Justification, then, if authentic, is an instantaneous event in history which remains intact and secure for eternity. B. Sanctification has to do with the nature, heart, and condition of the person in question. As opposed to justification, which is instantaneous, sanctification is a lifelong process leading to the fourth stepping stone, confirmation, which results ultimately in the fifth stepping stone, consummation. Sanctification begins concurrently with justification when the believer receives Jesus into their hearts, minds, and lives. Just as the sinner and their old nature of sin is buried with Christ, the believer is raised in Christ by his power to a new life and a new nature made in God's image. It is at the point of justification along with God's indwelling power and spirit initiating sanctification that God identifies us as being called out from the world, i.e. the outcalled ones, the ecclesia, God's church. And we are truly Christians, those who are following Christ towards consummation and eternity. Good examples of conversion are found in Acts chapter 2, verse 38, which says, quote, 
And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Unquote. Also, Acts chapter 3, verses 19 through 21. Quote, Repent, therefore, and turn again, that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. Unquote. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 says, quote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. Unquote. Consequently, if justification is an event in history which remains intact and secure for eternity, then sanctification is a process also called confirmation which begins contemporaneously with the event of justification, but which continues indefinitely throughout the life of the believer until the believer reaches consummation. 4. The fourth stepping stone which gives evidence of biblical Christianity is confirmation. Confirmation is the continued process of sanctification wherein God's Spirit working to continue the process of conviction reveals those aspects of our nature, character, heart, and condition which God wants to refine in our lives. Since we are now Christ's bride, the church, the outcalled ones, God's Spirit begins to prepare us and conform us increasingly into the fullness and likeness of His image. It must be remembered that although the true Christian, the ones who are called out, Christ's church, His bride, all have the common unifying reality of justification in its fullness, each member of Christ's body, the church, even though they are truly Christian, will nevertheless be diverse along the path of sanctification. From the outside, the world often views the diversification of the body of Christ as evidence that Christians are inconsistent, untrustworthy, and or hypocritical as a whole. But the truth is that even though a Christian can be justified, their nature, character, heart, and condition remain exposed to the effects of sin which is being sanctified and conformed to the image of God by His power and Spirit. Thus, the diversity in question is not only normal, but expected and natural. The reason is that God's Spirit works in the lives of believers to empower and endow them with the individual gifts of the Spirit which are designed and given individually or in a group as God sees fit. Many times, people who are true Christians may appear different to the world and even to other Christians because every believer may be progressing faster or slower on the pathway than another. Not every believer has the same gifts or abilities in their life. The important thing to bear in mind is not the quantity of the fruit in any believer, although that is a factor. Rather, the important thing is that the believer should in fact bear fruit and use it to God's glory. The following is a short list of items in no particular order which are behaviors and or expressions which we would expect to see as the fruit in evidence of true Christianity. 1. Worship, praise, and honor of God. 
2. Studying the Bible 3. Prayer 4. Fasting 5. Baptism 6. Communion 7. Identifying and exercising the gifts of the Holy Spirit 8. Supporting the work of the church through offerings 9. Evangelizing the lost 10. Giving assistance, comfort, and encouragement to the body 11. Charity 12. Unification of the body 13. Contending for the faith and 14. Being salt and light to the world Good examples of confirmation are found in Romans chapter 8, verse 29, which says, quote, For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, unquote. Romans chapter 12, verse 2, quote, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect, unquote. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 13 Till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, unquote. 5. The fifth and last stepping stone which gives final evidence of biblical Christianity is consummation. Consummation is a term which deals with the details and status of creation, including mankind within God's timeline. This timeline status and the details of consummation are sometimes referred to as eschatology. Eschatology is likewise defined as those things pertaining to the end of history and the consummation of God's kingdom. All total, consummation and eschatology concern both personal issues in a soteriological sense, i.e. issues of salvation, death, and the intermediate state, as well as general creation and an overall corporate focus. The latter would include such topics as the return of Christ, the resurrection, judgment, tribulation, the millennial kingdom, and the eternal state. For the biblical Christian, the attitude which demonstrates a correct perspective on consummation is their willingness and focus to place all things in their life at the disposal of God's sovereign will. Accordingly, true Christians will place anything and everything which advances and promotes God's kingdom first in their lives. If decisions and choices need to be made, then anything and everything which does not advance and promote God's kingdom, or does not conform to his will as plainly revealed within the totality of Scripture in its proper context, will come second. Good examples of consummation are found in Matthew chapter 6, verse 33, which says, quote, But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added unto you, unquote. Luke chapter 11, verse 2, quote, And he said unto them, When ye pray, say, Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, as in heaven, so in earth, unquote. Our conclusion is that during the course of this episode, we asked four questions regarding Christianity. 1. If Christianity is authentic, then why are there so many denominations and or variations? 2. 
If Christianity is true, then why have there been so many Christians who have done such terrible things? 3. If Christianity is true, why are there Christians who still continue to commit sin? And 4. What is a true Christian? At the heart of answering all four questions is the reality of who is asking, answering, and evaluating the questions and answers. As we stand back and look at the above questions from the vantage point of spiritual discernment via the new birth, using God's Word in context as our map, we see the truth that there are many who consciously or subconsciously use the label Christian with various definitions, yet comparing the totality of what those same people believe and how they act out their lives accordingly, it is clear that they are not in fact Christian as the Bible or as God would define it. With all due respect, it is simply an axiomatic reality that according to God's word, those who are atheists, agnostics, secular humanists, non-Christians, secular Christians, cultural Christians, or carnal Christians may have intelligence and education. But because they lack spiritual discernment via a living relationship with Jesus, they are consequently unable to correctly ask, answer, or evaluate who or what is or is not biblically Christian. We also know that despite the fact that there is one or a million pretenders to something with the label A, does not negate the reality that there is something authentic identified as A. In the case of Christianity, we were able to use scripture to identify five letter C stepping stones, conviction, confession, conversion, confirmation, and consummation, which provide the basic blueprint and definition which give biblical credence to the title or label Christian which is the sixth and cumulative letter C stepping stone. In the final assessment, the only people qualified to correctly know and understand who or what is Christian are those who actually know and follow Christ via a relationship by grace through faith in what he has, is, and continues to do for them. This is confirmed by John chapter 10, verse 27, where Jesus says, quote, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. Unquote. Father, give us final courage as your word encourages in Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, which says, Wherefore, seeing we are also are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which so easily besets us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us. We pray that your spirit and power which raised your son Jesus from the grave would raise us from death to a life eternal. May the fruit of our lives give all glory and honor to you, both now and forevermore. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Now, if you have any questions on God, the Bible, or the Christian faith, I encourage you to send me an email at pastor underscore Yeshua at yahoo.com. That's P-A-S-T-O-R underscore Y-E-S-H-U-A at yahoo.com. Thank you for listening. Bye.